And what can happen is this slowing down and this ability to start perceiving, yeah, the aliveness of the world again. And Miraz and I call it coming into the elemental self. So we kind of perceive the everyday persona that we generally inhabit as, as the um, citizen mode. Citizen mode, you know, yeah got to get stuff done and this is shedding the citizen mode and coming into the elemental self and the elemental self is deeply participatory and like all the the relational threads that seem to be hard to perceive in the citizen mode start to become clear and come forward and you suddenly find yourself in communication with the world again. That's Sky and Miraz in this conversation that was so nourishing to my heart and soul, and I can't wait to share with you. I let this one expand past the hour, and I'm so glad I did, because the conversation only got more enlivening as we went, and towards the end we talk about urgency and making space for slow, imaginal time, and the ecstasy of eating an avocado with that kind of slowness and presence. And if you stick around until the end there, you'll hear Sky share some information about a hugely important case going on in Ecuador right now about protecting an area of rainforest, the Los Cedros Reserve, based on the legal rights of nature. And you'll hear Miraz conclude with a poem for us that hit me so hard in such a good way. You'll also hear us talk about the unlikelihood of our existence Sky and Miraz's practice of dieta, which they learned from their years with Shipibo teachers in Peru, their relationship with the more than human world, and they speak about how important it is to shift our perspective to one of complete interconnection with the rest of the world, and also share really openly about how difficult it is to do that in a lasting way when we've been raised in a culture that teaches us to see so much of the world as pretty inert and lifeless. You'll hear about their experiences with plant medicine and community grief circles and so much more. All right, I think that's enough from me. Let's jump right into this conversation. May it serve you and the great turning. You're listening to Turning Season Podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar, here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and change makers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, New innovations to bridging social divides, there are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. My guests today are Sky and Miraz, joining me from Australia. And they've shared with me this lovely long introduction, which I'm going to read to you in full because I think it will nicely seed the soil of our conversation and give you a glimpse of what we're about to explore. 
So Sky grew up on a farm in South Africa and spent her early years immersed in wildlife conservation and rehabilitation before going on to work as a wilderness guide. She then completed a three-year apprenticeship in Taoist healing practices before heading to the Peruvian Amazon jungle where she entered into a five-year apprenticeship in Amazonian curanderismo or plant medicine with her Shipibo teachers of the Mahua Lopez lineage and she co-facilitated healing retreats there with Miraz. She moved to Melbourne, Australia four years ago, where she first encountered deep ecology, also known as the work that reconnects, through workshops with John Seed. And she's been a passionate student and co-facilitator of this work ever since. And Miraz has diligently embodied the story of separation. He writes that he's wrestled demons of despair and shame in the spiritual vacuum of Disneyland and lost many times. He feels that there is something in this deep ecology stuff that is true, like birdsong or plant roots as they push up through the concrete. So he continues to follow the thread. With Sky, Miraz also studied plant medicine in Peru and facilitated retreats there for years. He also has a background in corporate law, dispute resolution, and counseling. He feels that deep ecology is one of the ways we can address the crisis of perception underlying the anthropogenic mayhem of our age. And Sky and Miraz write, we feel that it is part of our ecological function to address the crisis of perception. We're talking about the pernicious misunderstanding that humans are separate and superior to the rest of the earth system. Our work is to help awaken the human from the trance of separation and anthropocentrism and into the truth of interbeing. Our identity as interconnected and interdependent cells in the living body of the earth. So welcome Sky and Miraz. Thank you so much for making time to be with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, Leilani. It feels really good to be here. Exactly. <laughs> I would love to ask you both anything you want to add in opening our conversation and also to share with me and listeners a little bit about what moves you. So I'll invite you to finish the sentence from the Deep Ecology work. Some things I love about being alive on Earth are... And I'd love to hear from each of you. So jump in however you want. Yeah, thank you. Um, before I answer that question, I would love to acknowledge that um, Miraz and I are coming to you um, from Wurundjeri country. So Melbourne lies, well, particularly where we are in Melbourne, lies in Wurundjeri country. And that's part of the larger Kulin nation and the Wurundjeri language group. And yeah, it just feels really important to start these conversations with an acknowledgement that, yeah, the, the land that we're speaking to you from is, is unceded um, territory and that there's a lot of um, a lot of pain and grief still in the land here and and that this is this is very much a part of the ecology of what informs us and the conversations that we have so I just wanted to name that briefly before we begin and um, yeah something that I really love about being alive um, is lightning storms hmm. and um, I had this experience recently where I got to watch this caterpillar go through its entire life cycle from a tiny 
little tiny little caterpillar eating its way through our nettle bush and going into the chrysalis and then just yesterday um, emerging as a butterfly and yeah that is most definitely one of the things I love about being alive on earth is being able to kind of witness um, this everyday uh, beauty and miracles that happen that are just so ordinary and yet are yeah deeply deeply profoundly beautiful Mm -hmm. absolutely thank you for those and thank you for your acknowledgement of the land that you're on I hear you in that and I appreciate you naming it yeah thank you um for me something that I love about being alive on earth is uh, the kind of double-edged sword of um, the sensitivity that we have as humans uh, to feel the touch of the world upon us and to actually also um, touch the world, to commune. Um, yeah, and the moments when uh, I'm able to kind of dissolve or be seen through um, and yes, uh, I'm able to touch something greater than than myself, and you know, commune with the yeah outrageous diversity and beauty of the planet. Mm. Mm. Yes, I love that. Outrageous! It is outrageous. Outrageous and <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> and unlikely. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was just listening to. Lydia Violet, whom I know, Sky, you know her, um, who runs the School for the Great Turning. And she was talking about this professor of hers who shared the story of the cosmos in this mystical way. And it was that unlikelihood that makes it so magical. Even if we just talk about atoms and gravity and, and some sense of chance, just the pure unlikelihood of it. Exactly. Yeah, oh. that that gets my juices going for every sure. time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if that professor is Brian Swim, which I suspect it might be, then yeah, we we have had our same deep inspirations, awe inspiring yeah. inspirations through his his work as well. And yeah, just oh, this, this return to the unlikeliness, you know, of the whole yeah <laughs> unfolding yes. glorious. Yeah, I think it was um uh in one and maybe in one of Stan Groff's books that I remember reading uh that the the chances of um things kind of self-organizing as they have um with such perfection and beauty on this planet is kind of uh, similar to the chances of a tornado hurtling through a junkyard and assembling a 747 jet. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's, a good That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, now we're smiling and I'm going to ask you on the other side of that, that full expanse that we can reach to, how would you, how would you finish this sentence? When I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is. (sighs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, when I look around at what's happening in the world, what breaks my heart is that it didn't have to, it feels like uh, it didn't have to be this way, that um, 
maybe it, it wasn't inevitable, the, the trajectory of our kind of global Western civilization. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. When I look out the world at the world today, what breaks my heart is this, this kind of trance that I myself fall into and, and most others, I assume most others who I encounter are in a similar trance. And that's this just going about our lives just seeing the surfaces of life and just seeing everything as kind of discrete individual objects that might not have any kind of livingness or meaning in them. And mm -hmm. uh, this kind of uh, spiritual flatland um, that I feel so many of us inhabit, not because that's how it is, but that that's how we've been taught and just the, the deep um, emptiness and pain that I feel sits in the heart of many of us who've grown up in Western civilization as a result of this and the, the kind of compulsive uh, consumption and um, need to find these secondary satisfactions to, to try and fill that, uh, that should be filled with what Francis Weller calls the primary satisfactions. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a it's a bottomless pit. And I'm, yeah, I can't help noticing all the unraveling that's happening as a result of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like a tragedy, really. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think um, the, yeah, the words of Paul Shepard come to mind when he, he says um, the sense of grief and loss um, that we so often attribute to a failure of our personality is actually. Um, a, a feeling of emptiness where a beautiful and strange otherness should have been encountered. Mm. That breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah. That sums it up. Mm. You know, as you're sharing these, these things, which I'm feeling with you, I'm feeling the heartbreak of these things with you. I'm also still seeing that, that tornado through the junkyard and like the 747 that got assembled here. <laughs> has has these pieces to it, you know, that were yeah. that we yeah. that it did go this way. It has so far gone this way. Mm -hmm. um, but that I mean, just imagine there are so many other possibilities that even all three of us putting our heads together, we can only imagine a tiny <laughs> fraction of all the possibilities. So yeah, holding those heartbreaking truths in, in that. In that That's right. And and to hold both of those things, you know, the 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 beauty and the gratitude with the the pain and the heartbreak mm -hmm. yeah. yeah 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 sky do you want to name what the primary satisfactions are for listeners for just even a glimpse of that feeling what is it that would give us that deeper sense of satisfaction and full fulfillment really yeah i mean there's quite a few of them but some of them are um so simple it's it's sharing music and food with community it is finding time and space to be mm. um you know slowing down with the land it's it's this this other kind of perceptive shift that we've just already been alluding to which is like the recognition or participation with the world as a living meaningful 
being, you know, that can, we can be in relationship with. There's so many aspects to the primary satisfactions that really constitute a simple, grounded, connected, communal, relational life, essentially. You yeah. Know, it could be, as, could be as simple as singing songs around the fire under a full moon. Mm-hmm. you know during the eclipse <laughs> these are examples of primary yeah. of primary satisfactions yeah yeah or, or eating an avocado but being really present when you mm-hmm. do it yeah. and chewing slowly <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah oh music and campfires and avocados are like probably on my top 10 list so you're <laughs> there <laughs> likewise um yeah, but you have to slow right down yeah, to yes. do that, you know? right to really be satisfied by that i think that's true you do have to slow yeah. down to Absolutely. experience it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah which is you know that's another aspect of this um culture that we're inhabiting which is constantly you know encouraging us to to go at top speed to get get yeah. it all done yeah <laughs> really doesn't allow for the, the space required to to be with to be with life as it is yeah so i i told you both that i might ask you about the three stories of our time which i've been asking all my guests on turning season but i want to ask i know you two have thought so much about all this i'm going to give you like the advanced version <laughs> the part b <laughs> i'm i want to ask you not just about the the three stories but how you're relating to the three dimensions of the great turning so mm-hmm. if anyone's listening to the show for the first time you know the three stories are different worldviews different ways that people can look at the story that we're in right now, the the track that humanity is on. And the first one is business as usual. We can essentially carry on as we have been with growth and human ingenuity, and it'll all work out. The planet can allow us to grow in an unlimited way. And the second story is the great unraveling, where we look around and what we mostly see is crises and everything falling apart ecologically and socially. And the third story, the adventure story, is the great turning, where humanity is now turning toward a life-sustaining society, or many versions of life-sustaining society. And I feel like it's safe to say that you two are really living in your way in service of the great turning. And so I'm curious, not just about how you relate to those three stories, but within the great turning... You know, we talk about the three dimensions, um, yeah. where you find yourself in that, the, the first dimension being the sort of holding actions that slow down the damage to earth and to all of us, all of us beings here on earth. Mm. And the second being looking at the structural causes of this mess and, and what kind of structural alternatives we have. And then the third dimension is the shift in consciousness that would shift our our values and the way we perceive so that we could sustain those those structural alternatives so all right take it away (laughs) thank you um yeah well in our intro um you mentioned and well we mentioned that we feel that our work is has a lot to do with this um what we perceive to be the crisis of perception and um you know uh there's a an amazing quote that kind of sums that up by Fritjof Capra 
the ecological, economic and social crises that are progressively worsening are in fact the symptoms of an underlying deeper crisis, a crisis of perception. Yeah, and I feel like that really points to very much like the what we perceive to be the essence um, in some way of both the problem and what we are attempting to do with our our trajectory and the work that we offer. And so in terms of the three stories, um, the first story being business as usual, you know, this this story really um, tells it tell our, it, the, the culture, the Western industrial growth culture that most of us I'm imagining who are listening to this are um, a part of, are kind of part of the story that is so pervasive that it's almost invisible. And it's the this, this story that um, basically, it's the story of separation. So it essentially says that we're separate individuals and, um, you know, the world outside of us what we might call nature is just you know discrete objects and um generally perceived to be um like without any life or sentience and that you know that life is quite a random random place that <laughs> there's not necessarily any like meaning in this and even if you don't really hold that story as true in your belief system the culture that we're living in and all the systems that we engage in every single day, whether that's like the road system to get from here to work, uh, the education system, the food systems are founded on this way of seeing. And, and, and it is literally so pervasive that most of us, if we haven't actively gone to see this and understand this, don't, don't even know that this is the story that we're inhabiting day in mm -hmm. and day out. The, the mood is summed up quite well by the quote by Charles Eisenstein, uh, a Cartesian mote of consciousness looking out the eyes of a flesh robot programmed by its genes to maximize reproductive self-interest. Mm -hmm. That's the, the view of the self, you know, you can get a feeling for it. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, obviously, um, even though we are very much moving towards the great turning story, which we'll get to shortly, um, you know, there's there's been a part of us that, has very painfully had to acknowledge uh, the ways in which we ourselves embody the story a lot of the time in unconscious ways you know for example when I go to the grocery store you know yeah. like I I might have this active um, relational connection with other than humans in my in my practice and then I fall unconscious into this business as usual story yeah every day multiple <laughs> times a day and 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 you know, that's, that's hard to acknowledge, but it's also, you know, one of the big aspects of our work has been to, to really <laughs> cultivate some self-compassion because we've come to understand that as humans, it's so, so natural to unconsciously resonate with, with the story of your culture and, you know, that there's a real deep safety in being in alignment with the story of your culture and, um, and when you're participating in systems all the time that are emphasizing and reflecting that story back to you, even in even the language patterns we have, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, being cutting ourselves some slack, <laughs> mm -hmm. but at the same time being quite focused on drawing attention uh, to the ways that we inhabit that story. And that that feels like a really important first step. And Joanna speaks really clearly to the importance of of 
learning to see that Joanna Macy. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what yeah. And in, and in terms of where we um, uh, find ourselves in the three dimensions of the great turning, you mentioned the holding actions, the transforming of the systems, and then the transforming consciousness. Yeah. Um, we definitely um, uh, are established or are a grounding into uh, the transforming consciousness aspect. That's kind of where we feel most naturally called. Um, and yeah, so as Sky was saying, part of what we feel we're doing is to kind of dismantle or uh, dismember um, this story of separation and then to um, yeah facilitate the causes and conditions to remember um, this you know innate uh, primordial archetypal mode of perception um, which you might call animistic um, or panpsychist which is is grounded in the the recognition or the felt sense reality that um everything is is alive and sentient um and so yeah those are kind of on, on one level out the the transforming consciousness work that we do has to do with this dismembering and remembering and um and also we we, we support the the holding actions the actions to slow um the the damage wrought by the industrial growth society in a few different ways we we do um directly we we participate in um in protests and marches and things like that um but uh we also uh, raise uh, uh quite a lot of money for um uh, actions uh you know organizations that are dedicated to the preservation um, of of the natural world such as the rainforest information center and melbourne rainforest action group who are doing absolutely tremendous work um all around the world but in particular at the moment um in in um, protecting uh, one of the most biodiverse regions in the world uh, in Ecuador, mm -hmm. Los Cedros. So um, so those are some of the ways in terms of the transforming systems dimension. Um, uh, we try and, uh, and and get everyone that we can uh, interested in gardening <laughs> with us. Uh-huh. Not only that, I would say that, you know, the consciousness in terms of the, the three dimensions of the great turning the consciousness transformation for us, I feel, goes really hand in hand with the transforming systems in the sense that I feel like our work is, is also about starting to create new culture around that. So we have um, the essence of our work maybe helps facilitate those, those consciousness shifts. But then the second part of our body of work is also around starting to create uh, mm. what you could call like sangha or community and you know, creating a shared language and, and maps and and then therefore shifting shifting culture to to create the fertile ground for the seeds of of interconnection to to flourish again mm -hmm. you know and that's a slow process like we totally recognize that that's um probably a multi-generational process and that's actually been you know one of the griefs of this work is recognizing that you know as as um parts of a much what much larger system in time and in space uh, what we are doing is, is just one tiny part of this huge wave that is the great turning, you know, yeah. and that that the that what we are being called to do um, feels like absolutely essential, and we may not live to see that, but the fruits of that inevitably, you know, we we right. have these moments of of coming back into kind of participatory animistic. Um, ways of seeing and consciousness and feeling new ways starting to emerge and you know and then there's 
this part that's had to make peace with the fact that maybe we won't see the full flourishing of that. Maybe it's just one step in a much larger picture. And there's a beauty in that and a sadness in that, you know. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you for three more hours just about the things you've each said right here, but I won't um, totally indulge all my curiosities. I'm thinking about the people listening who (laughs) are drawn to this, this thing that you're both so called to do, which is about shifting consciousness, you know, and I think I personally, I may live a lot closer to the land and to the plants, um, in particular around me than most people in the business as usual culture. But, you know, I have a friend here who, I mean, her eyes and her ears are open in a way that I am in awe of. And I was joking with my husband, well, when I hang out with her, I feel like I'm a cold hearted capitalist. Like I just, (laughs) I'm like not there, you know, I'm like, Business as usual is is um, threaded through my perceptions and my language, and yeah. and so yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. And even if you have specific stories or ways that your own consciousness has shifted, or people you've worked with, mm-hmm. and how you do that, I know you work with plant medicine and lots of other sort of modalities for connecting with people and supporting that shift of consciousness. So. Yeah. Anything you could share about that? Yeah, it's such a um, vast topic. So I, I've said this in other podcasts, but it's just, uh, I feel like I need to kind of always acknowledge that there's all these threads that we want to explore and we want to go really deep and it would just take forever. And so <laughs> coming into the trust of, of the little pieces that are, um, are shared in the, in the time that we have together. Um, but yeah, we, we work across quite a few different dimensions to kind of achieve this shift that um, we feel so passionate about. And um, yeah, there's many stories we could tell, but I would say the three kind of primary dimensions that we work with are, yeah, these, um, I guess you could say like, technologies of remembrance which for us is primarily the neuronostics or the entheogens the you know the kind of plant medicine psychedelics um, which we have traditional training in through the amazon jungle through the shapiba lineage that we trained with and um, that has been an absolutely essential step for both of us i would say like the the kind of journey that we we both went on in our own separate ways was like feeling the intense pain of the Western industrial growth culture and, you know, the story of separation in our own bodies and minds and, you know, like the, the personal great unraveling in ourselves, you know, which kind of manifested as, you know, a lot of grief and existential crisis. And in Miraz's case, depression, um, it it's this kind of great unraveling in in the personal realm and then reflected in the you know in the collective that started us both on a journey which which kind of led us to the plants quite early on at a young age and for me I was 16 when I went to the jungle um, the Peruvian Amazon jungle the first time to participate in a ayahuasca healing retreat and and that completely um, cracked my world view at the time it really like um, took a kind of a sledgehammer to the materialist worldview and open me up and 
that was really just the beginning of the whole path that I've traveled since then, you know, and I, I really feel like because of the intensity of the conditioning in our culture, um, there are other ways to experience that opening. And I feel like the plant medicines are an incredible ally to us at this time. If used with a lot of care and a lot of, you know, wisdom in the way that it's approached both before, during and after and um, not isolated, not as a, as a separate ceremony in and of itself, but, you know, within a, a larger framework of um, connection. And yeah, like we both ended up living in the Peruvian Amazon, rooted in an animistic culture, which is the Shipibo people that we lived with. Um, they, they, I mean, well, that was one of the most like great treasures actually of our time there is, is thinking that we were going to go and run ceremonies, which is what we were studying, but actually being surrounded and resonated by a culture that perceives everything, everything as alive. Mm. and meaningful um in a way that was actually in and sometimes overwhelming for my <laughs> you know western mind you know it took me some time to really sink into that and and once I did feeling how this was just such deep medicine for the wounds that I have sustained in my own psyche through living in this culture and being raised in this mm. culture mm -hmm. yeah I mean being in a in a culture, however, um, you know, we don't want to give the impression that um, uh, the, the culture was entirely intact or, or that um, it was uh, an uncomplicated uh, relationship that we had with, with our teachers. Um, but, you know, being immersed in, um, in a kind of frame of seeing the world as a living and sentient um, and, you know, with, with all of the, the beings in it, perfectly adapted for their functions and who each have their own form of intelligence and awareness and, and interiority and meaning and communication. Um, I, I feel like that allowed the kind of seeds that we remembered through the direct experiences with the plant medicines um, to, to be uh, protected and, and to, to germinate more fully. Um, that was a kind of soil or atmosphere, you know, this, 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 what we call now in shorthand, the living earth framework. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, the, the, you know, the third strand that, well, I guess now the living earth framework that we've embraced, um, which we feel is really uh, adapted to the, the Western mind and, um, you know, kind of, uh, yeah, respects the the roots of our conditioning in a way, or, or is adapted to the roots of our conditioning, is this uh, framework of deep ecology or the work that reconnects. Which, um, yeah, it's exciting to to have encountered something which which uses the same language and which can meet me uh, where I am in my in my Western you know fragmented um, psyche and heart. Um, but but it was it was an incredible transmission to be um, yeah in relationship with the Shipibos and immersed in that way of seeing and and really 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 helpful um, for for landing this realization that we had that um, plant medicine experiences um, shouldn't happen in a vacuum and they don't happen in a vacuum they all there's always a cultural context informing us there's always a framework that we're bringing to those experiences and that's a really important. Um, piece for us um, and you know I think anyone who has worked 
um, over the long term with sincerity with these plant teachers um, has encountered this, uh, um, yeah, kind of devastating, kind of frustrating truth that it's it's very hard to integrate some of these experiences. Um, and yeah. yeah, the answer lies in this understanding of the importance of culture and the way that humans are uh, simians wired to resonate with their cultural group and we just can't get away from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And so those were two really um, important pieces for us was this, I guess, um, beginning to work with what we might call um, technologies of remembrance, whether that's the plant medicines or for some people it could be breath work or vision, vision wilderness, vision fasts, or like there's different pathways to, to kind of shedding the heavy structures in the mind that condition our perception in a certain way and start to kind of loosen, loosen that up again so that we can perceive differently. Um, and for us, the plant medicines have been one of the greatest allies in our per- personal path in that way. And then as Miraz um, mentioned, like that combined with this, this living framework piece, whether it, that's like a drawing from indigenous cultures that you might be embedded and working alongside or now as um, we are finding that this deep ecology work, the reconnects framework, which kind of draws on, on many different things. Um, and then I guess the third piece was this incredible practice that our teachers taught us um, for cultivating both sensitivity and deep listening and shedding even further these, um, yeah, these stories, which is the, the practice of, of dieta, um, which again, is it can be similar to vision quest or wilderness fast, but it's this process of, of being in, in isolation and silence and doing a lot of fasting and a lot of praying um, and in nature, in nature and, and really oriented in a a very focused oriented um yeah prayer to connect with an other than human of of your choice whether it's something that you've chosen or with something that's chosen you so for example um fashion flower in my case is is a plant that I've worked with a lot and um so going into creating this container where you can allow your your human persona to start to drop away because it's like even if you're in the company of people that have very similar interests and mindsets to you and, and you know, enjoy the same discussions and everything like that, I, we've both discovered that just being around other humans seems to kind of trigger, trigger some of these conditionings and these patternings, as sad as that may be. And so <laughs> taking ourselves out of the human world and, and kind of like, really immersing in the other than human world and allowing that personality and all the associated um, conditioning to drop off and really focusing on this these other than human relationships and allowing them to flourish and to open um, both through the imaginal and through um, increased sensitivity of of heart and mind and senses and and what can happen, you know, and it, it's a different takes different times for different people is, is this slowing down and this ability to start perceiving um, 
yeah, the aliveness of the world again. And Miraz and I call it coming into elemental, into the elemental self. So we kind of perceive the everyday, everyday persona that we generally inhabit as as the um, citizen mode. Citizen mode, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, got to get stuff done. And this is shedding the citizen mode and coming into the elemental self. And the elemental self is deeply participatory and. Um, like all the the relational threads that seem to be hard to perceive in the citizen mode start to become clear and mm-hmm. and come forward and you suddenly find yourself in communication with the world again and it's just the most profoundly beautiful um, way of being to inhabit and really painful because it's it's challenging (laughs) to stay in that once you kind of return you know and I really feel like there's such a wisdom in Joanna Macy's um, spiral of the work that reconnects and her and her strong emphasis on on cultivating the skill of being with grief because it feels like almost like a prerequisite to coming into the elemental self is this ability to be with your grief because it it hurts when you when you return to this the state because one hand on the one hand you kind of realize how rare it is for you to be in it and how on some level this is what the soul is is constantly longing for you know um mm-hmm. and and then on the other hand it's through the sensitivity also feeling just feeling how deeply painful and violent the culture that we inhabit actually is in a way that I feel most of us are numbed out to feeling most of the time and so yeah without having this this space and this um framework for working with and being with the grief it can be really difficult to to stay with the elemental self any um period of time but yeah that's one of the fruits of that practice and and we you know we feel like that practice is one of the greatest gifts that was transmitted to us um, in the jungle Definitely. and totally totally a part of our um essential practice for for mental health and mm-hmm. yeah and it, and 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 it's pretty simple as well you know like we we use the the spanish word dieta um as a uh yeah the to call it dieta um but the the elements of it are so um common the pattern of activity of um, isolation fasting often um or eating very very bland foods um prayer meditation um connecting with other than humans um that that is you know seen that some of those patterns if not all of them are seen through through a lot of other um uh medicine traditions as well um you know Mm -hmm. vision quest is is one of those um and um, yeah, and, and the it's not an ascetic discipline. It's it's an embodied um, practice, and um, it's about uh, returning to to one's senses, you know, to ground awareness again in the body, in the sensing animal body, and to um, strip away the armoring of the heart. Mm. And that that's something um, for me as as somebody who's really um, struggled with a lot of identification with with the the mind and who has has had to operate for better or for worse in citizen mode for a long time um has been something which is um so refreshing mm. and um so so necessary and it's yeah as Stephen Buno one of our other teachers says that it's through the heart um, um that is the 
um, through which we can perceive the touch of the world on us and, and through yeah. which we can touch the world. So, yeah, it's a really important aspect of that practice mm, for us. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as Sky was saying, it's a double edged sword because the more sensitive that you get, the more you have to kind of feel the pain of what's going on, you know? Mm, and, yeah. um, and we do anyway, but um, but yeah, if we can't hold ourselves through that, or, or, or rather not hold ourselves, but I think uh, learn to to um, co-create and be held by um, communal nervous systems, you know, get get together with other people and learn mm. how to grieve, which is a big part of the work that reconnects or deep ecology as well. Um, then yeah, it, we can't do these practices in in um, by ourselves. Like we have to do them. In isolation in one way but we also have to build sangha and community as well so that's yeah. another thing that we're um in our fumbling way learning how to do mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm really absorbing i mean there's so so much again that you both just shared but i'm absorbing this piece about grief and and developing skill and community that allows us to be with our grief and to let our grief move I think I've always seen it as um, mostly about not having that grief be stagnant inside of us and making us mm -hmm. sick and keep, you know, keeping us from, from seeing clearly or living fully because you can't be stagnant anywhere if you want to live fully. Mm. But I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that as the connection deepens and as the perception of the pervasive violence of the way that most of us live, is, is felt more deeply, you have to be prepared for more grief than you've ever yes. felt before. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And, and the, you know, as Joanna says, like the, the other side of grief is, is love, you know, that's, it's the same, it's the same process, really. It's life it, as, um, yeah, it's, it's life stirring towards itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's the key to aliveness in my experience, you know, and um, yeah, I, I, I think when, when we're really able to connect with that and you know, I've, I've experienced this most directly in, um, in recent times in these um, deep ecology workshops that we've done where we have grief rituals um, and, and there's a witnessing of the kind of extended nervous system of the group um, and when we're really able to connect to that, like I, I feel what that results in is, um, is just this joy, this natural, um, natural joy as well. You know, it's like, it's heartbreaking and it's enlivening at the same time and, and, and real, real joy, you know, that not, I'm not talking about the kind of brittle um, new age, happy, happy, joy, joy, kind of joy. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, it comes from the, it's an upwelling, you know, from, from the from the stomach or something yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah now uh, one of our other teachers um Thich Nhat Han, speaks so potently to this this joy and pain being one <laughs> yeah and two two sides of the same coin and um you know and Joanna articulated how really when we are able to um when we are when we allow our hearts to break it's it's because we feel our world it's because we we love the, our world like that's yeah. that is what grief is you know so grief is love <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah 
And I love the way she says, honoring our pain for the world. Not, it's not just something we have to get through in order to, to do our thing. It's, it's something to be honored because it is that sign of love. It is that sign of our care and it's one, one form of it. Yeah. Totally, totally. You know, and, and for her, like, like part of the way that her work was quite revolutionary, I think for both of us was the way she emphasizes like pain, not being personal always, you know, like there is personal yeah. pain you know, mm-hmm. from that arises from my life story, from my biography, but that there's actually, there's a lot of pain that many of us carry um, that arises from our, from the interpersonal, you know? And so it's like in acknowledging that that's actually a doorway back into into interconnected perception in many ways you know it's like when I can when I can say oh wow I can I can feel the clear cut in my own body you know like I can I can feel what's happening to the oceans it's like that's not outside of me because this is my body this is my larger body you know Mm -hmm. And, and through not making pain personal or pathologizing it which is right you know again um gen- generally speaking is is how most of us have been taught um through opening and releasing that personalization and patholo- pathological kind of um view of grief we can actually use it as a doorway into into this interconnected perception in a very similar way that actually things like plant medicine um help us open into you know and and, and interestingly um Miraz knows this but you know my my journey when I, whenever I worked with plants, especially in my earlier years, like one of the first things that would happen would be just this huge ocean of grief. Like that was so, I was like, where is this coming from? I, I had a happy childhood, you know, like, <laughs> sure, you know, should happen. But like the level, the, the extent of the pain was not really, it would be hard to attribute it to my story. Yeah. And yeah. and I was always so confused by that. But 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 by allowing it to wash through me almost like a tsunami, I would always be so, so much more in touch with my compassion and my empathy and, and feeling connected to my world. And it was only really when I came across Joanna's work that I was like, oh, it's possible. It's actually this is something that that exists that I can feel not only the pain of what's happening in the world in space, but also through time that there's this, this ancestral grief that we have connected to. And, you know, and then that's when we kind of discovered Francis Weller's work, who's also a teacher of ours now and his um, five or what is now the six gates of grief. Um, and that's, that has been a really another very powerful uh, way of reclaiming feeling the feeling sense as a doorway into interconnection this is his work alongside joanna's yeah what i'd like to add um to this um because i'm i'm really feeling it you know as you're as you're speaking is um um that this the deep ecology or the work that reconnects um is there's this non-dual um aspect to it you know the, yeah. the fundamentally this is about shifting identity which is our idea of what we think we are mm-hmm. as, a, as a human you know and and it, it's it's really questioning this assumption am i this skin in, encapsulated ego as alan watts says um or or what am i really and um and w- when 
my first experience of um, a grief circle in a deep ecology retreat with John Seed um, a few years ago uh, hit me like a thunderclap, this experience of um, my kind of self-dissolving as we went around the circle and people expressed their grief um, and I expressed my grief and there was a point at which uh, I couldn't tell one from the other, mm -hmm. like it just became the pain. But I wasn't carrying it by myself. And, um, yeah, and there was, a, there was a sense of thinning the veil of the self. Mm. And that, that, I feel, is, is such a necessary experience for, for modern humans to have. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm. Thank you for all that. Yeah, I think that um, identity piece, like you said, is really at the core of all of this. You know, I don't think we could be in this form of business as usual without a particular sense of identity that is profoundly different from what you're describing right here with that mm. sense of interconnection with grief with the others in the room, with our ancestral experiences, with all that lives on this earth and with the perception that all lives, like that everything is having mm. an experience. And yes. I, I wanted to ask when you mentioned passion flower sky, and I don't know if any of this can or wants to come through in the human language of English, but if there's anything you want to share from passion flower or Miraz, anything that you want to share from anyone you've connected with in the non-human world that we might all be able to, to witness through you. Wow. That's a, it's quite an intimate request. <laughs> and you did totally open for de declining. So whatever. <laughs> I would say for me, um, yeah, the passion flower has been, yeah, a very, very important companion on my journey through all the things that we're speaking to right now. And um, yeah, I don't know if the message would be very different from all that we've been pointing to, um, but for me, the the actual um, relationship with the passion flower has been pretty instrumental to me in um, awakening this particular kind of consciousness that we're speaking to, this particular um, perception. And one of the reasons is because I feel like it's one of the few other than humans that has really kind of reached out to me in a very clear and strong way. And repeatedly, like I, I've now lived in the last since encountering passion flower which was seven years ago um i mean i knew of the plant before then but since i had my my real depth encounter um you know that was in peru and then lived temporarily back home in south africa before immigrating to australia and every place i've lived i've found a passion flower mm -hmm. either on the land or very very close like on my walking route or wow yeah. Um, 
very, very strong dream connections, which is, I know, something you can really appreciate. And mm-hmm. that's how I encountered your work was through the dreamers, Den. Um, but, yeah, this this reaching toward me and in a way that felt, it felt like, like an invitation from the world back into a live, meaningful connection in a way that was overt as opposed to as you know up till then it had been quite subtle and this has been quite a a strong strong Mm. clear relationship in that way and something that keeps coming through my relationship with passion flower is this turning back towards um the awe of just being here at all and this because it because she's a flower there's this kind of celestial kind of for me deep time like quality but at the same time like very very earthy and and she's come to me in the form of um the tibetan buddhist deity tara um Mm. which is interestingly is is one of the primary kind of um energetic influences in the work that reconnects through joanna macy it has she has a very strong relationship with tara and and you know joanna sees the work that reconnects as a is in some ways like an emanation of the luminous kind of body sattva activity of Tara in the world. And, and before I ca- encountered this work, this flower was coming to me in dreams and ceremonies through her form as well. And there's just so many overlaps and synchronicities and connections that made it really hard for me to feel like this world was not something really, really alive and mysterious in ways that I have not been able to kind of consistently articulate in a way that that honors it you know in yeah. a way that it deserves but yeah I really feel like any any kind of other than human relationship that we develop and then attend to over time has this eventually has this ability to kind of break down those walls and lead us into this this shift in identity that we was just speaking to um, yeah. and for me is one of the most primary and alive pathways into that and you know like theater has been an incredible kind of container for us to to drop even deeper into those transmissions and doorways you know um yeah yeah and for me uh there's so many i mean there's so many things that i'm i could share and some which which i don't think that i I want to, um, but there's one thing I think that that's come up, um, and I, I love the question, by the way. I think it's terrific. Um, but one thing that's come up that I want to share is um, the uh, Yunzi mushroom or the turkey tail mushroom, um, but also other mushrooms as well have, have really helped me with and have um, sometimes forcefully uh, kind of slapped in my face <laughs> is, is this message of stop just stop and slow down mm-hmm. stop what you're doing <laughs> mm. stop all the lists stop all of those things that you, you you think are so important and serious and just slow down and this virtue of actually doing nothing mm. and having a nap <laughs> like that has been coming up for me recently is something which is, you know, uh, kind of unintuitively so necessary and profound. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like it feels like some sort of a revolution from a 
for my <laughs> modern yeah. mind. It's yeah. Like staring into space, you know, just sitting and staring yeah. into space. And yeah. Totally. I feel like it's that space. <laughs> you know, we've both kind of, it's so interesting because we recently came out of a dieta here on the land that we're living on. And um, we both kind of in our own ways had this transmission around just radically letting all the activity go and, you know, and, and in some ways entering into the territory of what some folks might, might call like boredom or something, but it's uh -huh. like in this, in this kind of real open space of dropping into the, into the slowness and the, the non-doing earth speed, earth speed, geologic yeah. speed. Yeah. It's like this, kind of the for me anyway the imaginal capacity then has space to to arise again and and you know this for me is is uh, a really important bridge between the human and the other than human is this imaginal imaginal realm and um it requires so much space and quietness mm. <laughs> and is usually preceded by a kind of like a blank space staring like what am I actually doing here in this you know which can last hours or even days you know? mm -hmm. and you just you need to have like such patience to be with that state and what arises out of that is just this this slow bridge of connection through this imaginal that is very difficult to access without that that slowing down mm, you know? yeah. yeah and and there's so, there's so many i feel that there's these parts of me that i'm not really in touch with mostly consciously but that are deeply nourished by by just that slowing down and doing nothing in time <laughs> yeah deep in time. Yes. we're definitely over yanged now in totally. our society yeah. right right yeah. um well, i love that i love all of that thank you for uh taking on the challenge of of articulating all that, putting it into words. Um, I, I need to be reminded, and I'm sure many people who are listening, I know in fact that many people listening share this sense of urgency around mm -hmm. everything that we need to do, you know, as we witness the great unraveling and this yeah. simultaneous sense that we need to slow down. We need to rest, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, I just I love that simple message. Just stop, just <laughs> stop the lists, you know, stare yeah. into space because there's a lot, there's a lot there. And even just the, even if nothing comes out of it, like it's never productive, just mm -hmm. the pause is yes. so important. And I think, you know, through a Chinese medicine cosmology, we're the, that water phase, it's the midnight, it's the mm -hmm. depth of winter. And we're like skipping it. We're trying to skip it. We keep yes. our lights yeah. on all night, literally and metaphorically. That's it. Yeah. You know, and yeah, we need to need to hang out there. So yeah. totally. I mean, I'm I, sure you're familiar with Bio Akomalofe's work and you know, yes. one of these amazing quotes that, you know, these times are urgent. We must slow down. And and I feel like one of his core teachings has been around this, the ways in which we kind of unconsciously act out the same consciousness and patterns through that urgency, not saying that, you know, we mustn't act now, we must, you know, like, yeah. so on board with that and hold, like, that's where the dimension of the holding actions really comes in. And, you know, a lot of that, like, absolutely now um, action is important, but at the same time, not neglecting this water dimension, this, this slowing down dimension, because that's what this is where I feel 
like the wisdom for something different arises from the ground of slowing down. And, and this yeah. is where life is happening, believe yeah. it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, right. And, and the more that I slow down, the more ecstatic the avocado becomes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I'm most of the time when I eat the avocado, I'm not here, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. And yeah. the more ecstatic the avocado is, the more we actually want to protect life on earth, the more we actually love being alive. Yeah, Absolutely. that's right. The more we can be touched by what's already here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <sighs> well, thank you for all of that. I, I want to invite you before we close to share anything else that you feel like is ripe to be spoken right now, as well as invite you to share anything with listeners if they're feeling moved and inspired right now and want to do something, something they might do. And even in the next few minutes and also share more about the work going on in Ecuador and protecting the rainforests, if you want to. Yeah. Thank you. Well, maybe I'll um, share a little bit about Ecuador and then, and then mm-hmm. I'll leave Mraz to, to close us off with, um, with his words. Um, so yeah, in the next few minutes or whenever, Uh, I would love to invite folks to check out um, this campaign that all of our um, deep ecology workshops over the last few years has been going um, towards funding. And it's it's a campaign that was started uh, by the organization of John Seed. And John Seed is one of the one of the co-founders of, of the work that reconnects alongside Joanna Macy. And he's a very dear friend of ours and also one of our, our mentors in this work and total legendary activist who um, whose organization, the Rainforest Information Center, has has helped along with along with many, many others um, to protect millions of acres across the world of rainforest, um, old growth primarily. And at the moment, his organization and their kind of active um, offshoot, which is the Melbourne Rainforest Action Group, have been working to protect um, rainforest, old, old growth rainforest in Ecuador, and particularly in the northwest of Ecuador, there's a place, um, a reserve that John Seed's organization founded in 1989 called Los Cedros Reserve. And this reserve is one of the most biodiverse regions on the entire planet. And it is home to innumerable endangered species and endemic species that cannot be found anywhere else. And unfortunately, this reserve a lot is, sits on top of what's known as the copper Andean copper belt. And in the Andes at the moment, um, there's a copper rush because with the green technology, um, that's happening at the moment, like electric cars, for example, a lot of copper is required. And unfortunately, a lot of the copper that we need um, sits underneath rainforests. Mm. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the moment, there's a huge amount of mining and attempted mining happening there. And um, this reserve in particular is being mined by a lot of Australian owned mining companies. And and his organization has been working really, really hard for many years to um, in in, um, collaboration with grassroots and indigenous led organizations on the ground to stop that mining from happening. And at the moment, there is this incredibly important court case happening 
to protect that reserve again, and it is being fought um, on the rights of nature. And this, this is really, really important because if it's won based on the rights of nature, it will set a legal precedent to potentially protect rainforests all over the world. And so this court case actually is one of John Seed's like most important moments. It, it has the potential to be one of the most important moments of his entire rainforest protection career. Wow. And so this is, this is the level of importance of this moment. And yeah. Um, yeah, and they're constantly in need of funds to, to do all kinds of research and to support Indigenous groups on the ground and to um, also help the communities that have become dependent on the mining um, to transition out of that dependence. Mm-hmm. There's a lot There's a lot that's needed there. And so, yeah, um, we will give Leilani the links to all of that. And if you are interested we invite you to either um, donate to the campaign or to share the campaign either whatever you're capable of doing would mean the world to us and to this um, group that have been working very very long hours with very little um, uh, what's the word recognition to uh, yeah powered off the smell of an oily rag I think yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah well great yeah I I will share all of those links and I'll also specifically just share more about the campaign more widely too. I, I didn't grasp until you explained it like this, just from looking really how huge this is. And this is huge. Yeah. yeah. It's huge. So, okay. Up, up, Thank up you. Till now, up till now, all of the money from our um, workshops has, has gone to um, this cause directly or, or indirectly through um, funding of Rainforest Information Center or Melbourne uh, Rainforest Action Group. Okay. Yeah. So another way that people can, um, can support is if you're in uh, Melbourne, although we are going to do some, we're in the process of organizing some online workshops with John Seed um, and our own ones for next year. So yeah, a lot of the funds that we we raise go to this. And so if you want to participate in this body of work and experience like connection in that way, and then also simultaneously support this cause, that is one of the, one of the ways to do that. Great. Um, yeah, Leilani, I, I, I feel uh, called to share a poem um, and you can keep this in or not. Um, it's, that's okay. But just as we were discussing the the stuff around um, grief and, and joy before, like I really uh, feel that this poem sums that up really, really beautifully. And um, uh, so if you, if you permit me this indulgence. Absolutely. I would love to hear a poem. Great. Um, so this is called, please call me by my true names by Thich Nhat Hanh. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I'm arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch. To be a tiny bird with still fragile wings learning to sing in my new nest. To be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower. To be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda.
I'm the 12 year old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I'm also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I'm a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I'm the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so that I can wake up and so that the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Mraz. And gratitude to Thich Nhat Hanh. I'm <laughs> That's, yeah, I don't need to add any words to it. I just want to thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Thank you both for being here with me and sharing from your hearts and giving us a glimpse into the vast world that you're that you're walking in and a glimpse of interconnection through your eyes. I will be sharing with everyone how they can find you and connect with you and, and support the campaign in Ecuador. Thank so, you. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much, Leilani. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for all the work that you do. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you've started this um, podcast and I really look forward to listening. I listened to your one with Ariella daily. It was beautiful. And I look forward to listening to the rest. Thank you for listening. I have so many links to share with you in the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode six. So if you're drawn to connect with Sky and Mraz to join and experience with them, you can find them directly at deepearthdreaming.world. And I'll also link to their site in the show notes as well as books and sites for the teachers they mentioned, John Seed, Francis Weller, Stephen Buhner, Iowa Komalafe, Tiknat Han, Joanna Macy. So come find out more about all of this in the show notes at turningseason.com slash episode six. I'm also going to share how you can support the campaign in Los Cedros in Ecuador. I'm excited to say that two days before releasing this episode, we got an update with some very good news about the legal protection of this region and recognition of the rights of nature. So come find the link to stay updated on that, what's happening in the campaign, and also its wider implications around the world. I'll be back on the full moon with a conversation with Jamie Harvey, a leader in sustainable food systems and healthcare, the founder of the One Sacred Earth Project, and the executive director of the Psychedelic Research and Training Institute. And that's another conversation that I thoroughly enjoyed and really look forward to sharing with you. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part.